0: I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you love the podcast, this project, and what it's all about, you know the drill. Take 60 seconds to support it at any level by visiting glow.fm slash pada bing. At a minimum, please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. And follow us on all the socials, at Potabing, especially Instagram, because that's where we come heaviest. To plan the next trivia show for a chance to win swag, guest on the pod, or just secure permanent bragging rights, DM at Potabing on Instagram. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a candid conversation I had with Joe Ganescoli. Joe played Vito Spatafore on the show. He called in from New York to share his Soprano story, including addressing some of the off-camera conflicts that were reported on by the New York Post. Special thanks to Joe for doing the podcast, telling his story, and revisiting some unpleasant stuff. That's all I got. Happy New Year, everybody. Be well. Here's Joe. Joe, thank you so much for being a part of this.
1: No problem. Great to be on. Thank you.
0: Before acting, you were a professional chef. What was your signature dish?
1: Mm, hard to say. I uh, My cooking background is uh, French. I worked in New Orleans for uh, four years. Um, I guess I came up with uh, Nouvelle Cuisine. So I always considered myself a sauce guy, a saucier. I wouldn't really have a particular dish. My cooking, well, of course, when I had restaurants, it was French. I guess it was fusion. You know, I had some French influences, all different cuisines. I'm a student of uh, different cuisines, but, uh, you know, Italian and French primarily. And I would say, uh, I just ordered this pasta, and it just came up. what is a... uh, a rigatoni and garlic, uh, garlic, uh, garlic olive oil and onions with uh, prosciutto, shiitake mushrooms, smoked mozzarella, and fresh arugula that I tossed with rigatoni. So everyone seemed to let, uh, love that.
0: Sounds incredible. Who is the most legendary patron you ever served?
1: Mm, good one. A uh, legendary patron? Yeah, I'd have to think about that.
0: It's fine. Biggest culinary influence and why?
1: I would say New Orleans uh, cooking because that it was at the height of that Paul Prudhomme, early 80s influence. And I happened to be there right at that time. I worked with a very um, renowned restaurant called Commander's Palace. So um, I would just say working for Ella Brennan would be the influence. How on top of she was of the kitchen.
0: You're obviously familiar with Anthony Bourdain?
1: I uh had dinner with him um and I read Kitchen Confidential. I had dinner with him and actually tried to uh, oh, I did option his first book Bone in the Throat.
0: Ah. Can you vouch for Kitchen Confidential was my question?
1: Yeah. Uh you know, I saw a lot of truths to that. Um you know as far as getting fish on a Friday uh and then, <laughs> you know, eating it Monday, Um, if it's fresh and it's kept right um, and eating it Sunday, Monday, I don't think it's all that bad. I kind of forgot the uh, rest of the things that were in it, but...
0: No, just the general sort of gist of the culture.
1: Yeah, a lot of it was true. A lot of it was true. You know, he used to hire guys that could hit him with uh, supplying with drugs or, you know, he could party with after the shift. I knew chefs like that.
0: From... Professional cooking to acting, how'd you make the transition? How'd you get into acting?
1: I was working as a chef on 73rd and Lex in Manhattan, and I had a very dear, uh, turned out to be very, still is a very dear friend. It was a waiter at the time called Tim Kelleher. Tim Kelleher, who's a working actor, was going to be, uh, he's uh, actually an ordained priest now, but uh, went to Villanova and is very uh, spiritual, religious. Uh, Roman Catholicism. I had a theater company and was doing a play and said, you know, I have this role that we're, this play we're doing and the are rolling and it's really good for you. Do you want to come on audition? And I did and I got it and, um, I enjoyed doing the play and it was a very off-Broadway thing. And, um, I said, you know, I I enjoy this. What should I do next? And he recommended me to a teacher that he studied with a uh, renowned uh, teacher called De Bob Patterson, who was a uh, Sanford Meisner uh, protege, and it's a very tough course. And I enjoyed really watching this guy teach more than what he was teaching. I lasted a year and a half. It was like a four-year thing, and um, I got back into the. I had left the restaurant business. I got back into it. I opened up this restaurant and I gambled it away. I was making crazy money. I lived in the building the restaurant was in. And uh, I gambled it. Uh, lost, I went big on it. Last game of the season, NFL 1990. And I lost like 60000 that Sunday. And I called up my friend. I cashed out. I, I said, you know, I'm done. I got to get out of New York. I can't go on like this. Pay off my debt. I called up my friend Tim, who was living out in L.A., and he goes, I said, bro, I, I'm I'm in trouble. I, I got to get out of here. Not bad trouble, but... I'm, like, going downhill here. So uh, I moved to L.A. and um, started uh, pursuing the acting.
0: It's written that Benicio Del Toro gave you your first acting break. How'd you get on his radar?
1: Yeah. So um, here's the deal with acting. This is why Brooklyn, you know, the hustle in me, the Brooklyn guy in me, you you know, the old adage, you can't get work without an agent, you can't get an agent without work. So... Uh, I was working in restaurants trying to like figure out how am I going to break into this business. And uh, I got to do these one-act plays down in Los Angeles which were really avant-garde fucking bullshit, you know, plays. Um, but this young kid said, uh, you know, we're starting an agency and uh, can I represent him? You want them to represent me. I said, oh, my God, that'd be great. Yeah, so I was so psyched. I said, I can't believe I finally got an agent. Um, it's going to be cool. So I was all hopped up. The uh, Come Monday, he's opening. He's working out of his apartment. And I'm all wired up smoking, you know, cigarettes and 6 a.m., you know, coffee. And I'm saying, all right, 9 o'clock. I'm going to go right to his apartment, and help him go through the breakdown, submit me for work and start making calls and this and that. And I go to his apartment and he's fucking... I wake him up 9 o'clock in the morning. I go, bro, this is like your first day. What are you doing? Say, like, oh, you know, the offices is out here. They don't open till 10 and this and that. I'm going, the fuck? It's your first fucking day. So I did that for a few days. And this, I said, this fucking guy just, you know, doesn't really have it. And I was driving him nuts. And he says, look, I'll call you when something happens. So what I started to do was I'd wake up at 5 and I'd go take the breakdowns that were lying in his uh, front of his door. I'd go make copies, and I'd return them his, and then I'd take mine, and I started submitting myself for jobs, and then I'd call up as my manager to try to get myself auditions. I changed the answering machine. I told my roommate, Tim, don't touch the answering machine, and before long, I started I, my manager's name. I made it name James Hoving. I said I was a manager just um, out here on business. I wanted to see get Joe seen for this role you're doing the casting director would say, what's your name? I said, James homing Manager, I just managed New York actors, which is all bullshit. And, um, I started to get myself auditions and that's how I got my first role. The first audition I went to, I had no credits, just one acting teacher. The casting director said, uh, when you start acting yesterday. So I took that, I made up all these roles and, uh, movies and plays and uh and just fluffed up the uh, resume and that's how I started getting it I got my first role called money for nothing with uh James Gandolfini Michael Madsen John Cusack Debbie Mazer, Michael Rappaport Philip Seymour Hoffman and Benicio Del Toro not bad and yeah and there's some uh it was quite the cast the movie didn't do well but it was quite the cast and uh, he remembered me. And then he says, listen, I'm directing a short film. I want you to be the lead. We're going to shoot in a, ho- uh, a hotel for three days. It's going to be you, Matthew McConaughey, and Valeria Galeno. I said, I was great for three days. And um, then he got me in two other movies that the casting directors from The Sopranos were casting. And they brought me in to meet me. And they said, just keep in touch, because I didn't have an agent. I left that guy. Keep in touch every few months, see what we're doing. Kept in touch. And they said, we've got this role, The Sopranos. We've got this role as Gino. Uh, It's a bakery scene. And I got it. At first, I said, no, I don't want to really do TV. And they said, forget about what you want to do, what you don't want to do. This is going to be good. So I went in and did it. And that's how it happened.
0: Who told you that? Who said, forget about what you want to do?
1: Uh, a casting director George Ann Walken. Love it. She, I don't care. Yeah, she, you don't think this. You know, yeah. Forget about what you want to do and TV and movies. This is going to be big.
0: Did you read for anything else?
1: No. Well, well, Gino, and then they brought me back for Vito. Yeah. And I auditioned for Vito.
0: How long was the lag between when you when you first show up as the legend of Tennessee Moltisanti for that bakery scene and then uh, Vito Spatafore. Can you recollect
1: vaguely? Mm.
0: I'm going to say a moment for your character. Tell me what comes to mind today. Killing Jackie Jr.
1: Uh, At the time, for me, it was like the biggest moment. It's the final season. I was really just a background guy, a couple lines here and there. And the fact that I killed, like, you know, he was a big heartthrob, you know, with the girls. uh, I got to kill him. So that was pretty cool.
0: Vito's power moves. When Tony's in a coma.
1: Um, Yeah, I guess that with the weight loss, he saw himself as more than he uh, thought he was. Or or he saw himself uh, more than he actually was. And he thought he could be the boss of the family.
0: Vito on the lamb after his sexuality is revealed to the crew.
1: Um, You know, just trying to find happiness. And a different way of life and amazed that this world exists outside of what he's grown up with in Jersey and how everybody accepts everybody Hmm. and, uh, you know, how that world exists.
0: Why does Vito eventually go back to New Jersey?
1: Uh, He's unhappy with the life. Probably he's not happy with himself. Misses his kids. Misses the life. You know, misses uh, his friends. Uh, It's what he's used to, the action. You know, the crime. You know, it was hard for him to change.
0: Is there any way he survives if Phil doesn't want him dead?
1: Um, It's always about money with the mob. And even though I was a big earner, I was costing the money because Phil and people wouldn't do business with Tony. because hmm. of me. So it's always about the money.
0: Talk about The Sopranos for a minute, just contextualize it for listeners and for me. Uh, What has it meant to your life? And looking back at it now, 12 years since the finale, 20 years since the premiere of the pilot, just kind of contextualize The Sopranos as it sits in your life and in your consciousness today.
1: It's changed my life. Uh, I was blessed. I was at the right place at the right time. I also had the balls to suggest making my character gay, which is not easy being from Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and the fact that they did it changed my life. I was would have been just a regular one of the guys in the background, a couple of lines here and there. But no matter where I go, everybody knows Vito. And I wasn't a main character. I came from an unknown the first season to a background guy as Vito to a major storyline, and it's the only suggestion that David ever uh, used, which I'm very proud of. And it wasn't easy for me, being a Brooklyn guy, you know, with the people I know and the the guys that I know, the real guys. Sure. um, You know, I had some problems with a couple of guys, guys that I knew that were friends, you know, didn't really give me the, uh, you know, the hi-hat. So it was kind of weird. But listen, I met my wife. They gave me an opportunity to buy a, you know, beautiful house in Long Island. I had a baby. I was, uh, you know, smoking cigarettes in my one, uh, my my uh, rent-controlled apartment in in Bay Ridge. You know, gambling and, uh, you know, overweight, out of shape. I didn't know I needed double hip replacement on the show until it was done. But it would have been a horrible existence. You know, I would have died in that apartment.
0: Thanks for sharing that. You were in thirty-nine episodes. Again, very cool sort of like rags to riches like you described it you were a a one-off character in a and an epic episode in season one and then it translated into a major storyline in the final uh seasons of the series 39 total episodes i know this is asking you to go down memory lane uh tony soprano legendarily says in the show remember when is the lowest form of communication but i i appreciate you indulging this what moments out of those 39 episodes and the days and, and weeks in between what still stands out For you today.
1: Well, how that whole veto thing came about was during season three. I guess at the card game with uh, Davy Scatino, Mm -hmm. David Proval, me, and I forgot who else was in the game. I cornered a uh, writer, Robin Green. And you gotta do it on the slide so nobody, ever, uh, nobody really sees. And I said, listen, uh, I'm reading this book called uh, Murder Machine, and in it it's a gay mobster, it'd be interesting to portray, I'd be willing to do it. She said, really? I gave her the book, nothing came about it. And then they killed this mobster in Jersey for being gay. And before we season started, they asked me the name of the book, and then, right then and there, I knew that they were thinking about it. And then they had a line change in the middle of the season where they gave me a wife. And I said, uh oh, something's big. And a little humorous thing is that we all had our moles in the show. And um, because we couldn't get the, epi- the episodes or the, the scripts before. So we all, the crew got them before us. And we all wanted to know who was going to die. You want to make sure you had a job. Sure. And so my guy didn't say, no, no, you're okay next episode. He says, oh, but I forgot to tell you, you're blowing a guy. And I went, what? He said, yeah, you're giving a fucking blowjob to a security guard. I'm like, get the fuck out. And I said, holy shit, one, is they going to do it? And two is it's not really what I had in mind. <laughs> you know, I was on the wrong end of that blowjob. I thought maybe I uh, get the blowjob and then I wind up fucking, you know, beating the guy up or something. You know, I'm one of those in denial uh, gay guys, uh, self-hating. Um, but I was grateful when I thought about it. And so when we went to the read-through. Everybody's in front. They're all cracking jokes and, you know, Sirico saying, you know, my friend Joe, the cocksucker, Stevie Van Zandt saying, you know, they're going to give you a hard time in the neighborhood. And Jimmy took me aside and said, "Listen, if you're uncomfortable with this, we'll go talk to David, and you don't have to do it." I said, "You know, not for nothing. I suggested it, and I'm going to trust them, their judgment, and I'm going to go ahead with it." So, um, I, I did, and uh, I only said, and the only thing I asked was, "I say, look, I I hope that um, you just don't do it." And, uh, forget about it, you know, like the Russians, uh, so,
0: make it into something.
1: Right. So they said, it's not going to be nothing this year, but next year be ready. It's going to be a big year for you. And it was, yeah, it was. And, and if I wasn't in the episode, they were talking about me. So it's pretty much like they dedicated the whole first part of season six to me, which was, you know, just from fucking phenomenal. When you, you know, you're on the greatest show ever. And, you know, and I thought about it, you know, where I came from, how it all happened. And now, and the whole point of that was to really give myself, you know, to show I can act. I mean, it's easy to play tough guy, you go up with it, you know, those guys, not much of a, uh, you know, an acting stretch, stretch but yeah. yeah, to do what I did was not easy, but, you know, I wanted to show I can act and it was supposed to parlay into like more roles and, but it never really happened. But you know, I can't complain because it opened a lot of doors for me.
0: That was what I was gonna. My next question, where I was going, like, was there a post Sopranos bump for you, or did your role sort of box you in, and, and did it have a, did it end up having like a, like the opposite effect, the negative effect?
1: I, uh, yeah, I did Jimmy Kimmel. I got a couple of movies. Uh, was never like a major thing. I should have went to another TV series. Okay. I, uh, see you, pal. I would have hopefully. I would have went to another TV series. Um. I didn't get auditions for that. Maybe it was because I didn't have really great representation at the time, but, uh, you know, I, I, I published a cookbook novel that happened. I got to be spokespersons for, you know, so I made money other ways, but not what I really wanted to do, which was acting more things.
0: Sure. I'm going to say a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. James Gandolfini.
1: Regular guy, tremendous actor. And, uh, I always said I was glad to see two things in my life. Mariano Rivera pitched the ninth inning and James Gandolfini act.
0: David Chase.
1: Brilliant guy, a little eccentric, very to himself. Uh, I mean, the highlight one time he stopped me, and I guess, during lunch. I was going to lunch and he says, hey, you're doing a really good job. And that was kind of cool. Yeah.
0: Frank Vincent
1: didn't really know him that well i always respected him i love rage and bullets one of the first movies that got me interested in acting i watched it over and over and over again it's one of my old-time favorites if not the favorite
0: were you a fan of the sopranos did you watch it
1: yeah i did i did because we never got to see the episodes so you don't know how you did your scenes you don't know what music they used you didn't know how it was cut you didn't know you know I mean, you're there for the read-throughs. I mean, some episodes I wasn't in, so I got to see him like everybody else. Yeah. And that was cool.
0: Have you watched it recently?
1: I have a hard time for a few reasons. I don't like seeing Jimmy. My limp was so bad because I needed double hip replacement that it's painful for me to watch because I was in tremendous pain. I was taking 10, 12 advils a day. I didn't even know that I needed hip replacement, double. Uh, I didn't go to an orthopedic till after the, the show. Um so that's painful And the way I walked and that um, I was always conscientious of that. So
0: that was actual walking. That was not acting walking, in other words, is what you're saying. No, no, that
1: was that's the way I walked.
0: Huh. Thoughts on the ending?
1: I loved it. Uh, I think that wow, however you ended up would have disappointed somebody. I didn't think there would be kill everybody in a, you know, a restaurant, his family, his wife, his kids. I didn't think that he would get arrested because that's the way you don't want to see Tony leading off, you know, to jail. I didn't think he would uh, flip because, you know, Tony's not that kind of guy. So I it left it for everybody's imagination and uh, I love the way it ended.
0: Most treasured possession from the show.
1: Mm. is it still of me that I have framed of me uh, my hand on the counter and my hands on my chin and uh, John Costello who played Johnny Cake, puts his hand on my hand on the counter
0: because
1: hmm. John was an actor I knew when Tim first got me involved in acting Tim Keller. yeah and uh John Costello was a friend of his. And I actually said, Wow, I you know, I know an actor that's actually in movies. Um sorry about the noise.
0: No, it's fine. Love it. You're in the elements.
1: Yeah. Um he um was in Dutch Schultz, he was in other movies and he was really respected as a New York actor. So when I walked in and they said, hey, we want you to come read with the guy that we're thinking about, Janet Cakes. And I saw it was him. I was relieved because it was someone I knew. You know?
0: Yeah, no. It's a comfort zone. You, can, you guys can create yeah. the vibe.
1: So that picture is uh, one of them. And that and um, Jimmy coming to my restaurant, uh, sick as a dog. You know, Jimmy touched me in a few ways. I want to touch upon this um, if I can.
0: Absolutely. It's your space. You know,
1: I was... Yeah, it was I was considered persona non grata. You know, now first of all I had a wedding during the season where most of the cast went. And I went uh got married on a Saturday and I was back to work Sunday. And they pretty much all the guys, if you look at my Twitter or my, my uh Facebook, you'll see the picture of I don't know if you did any of that. Uh you'll see the cast me posted with my wife and most of the cast is around it. It was great. And Jimmy came with his uh, his son. So I was considered persona non grata by an incident that happened, and uh, all of a sudden I was like sort of banned from the uh, studio, and all most of the cast turned on me. And I think it was perpetrated by uh, not perpetrated, but uh, what's the word I want? You know, sort of advanced. What's the word I want with a P? Perpetuated.
0: Do you want to talk about what happened?
1: Yeah. Do you know what I'm referring
0: to? I do, but I want to hear it in your words if, if it's something that you're comfortable sharing so you, with you, listeners. You're going
1: by the, the, the post series, the post story? Yeah. The, oh, she read that. Okay, good. So, um, now the guy that was responsible for that story was a guy that I became friends with on the show. And um, we'd call each other two times a week, and I helped him out, he helped me out, and uh, we were like friends. And uh, he was always the type of guy that always had really something snide to say about other cast members and stuff. Sort of like poking fun at them, which I didn't really do. I tried to laugh like a nervous laugh. It was kind of awkward because, you know, I didn't want to hear that. You know, what's this guy doing? What's that? Did you see him do this? I heard he's doing that, you know. And the thing that was said about him is like he was the type of guy who had a big bowl of ice cream in front of him, but he looked at everybody else's. So I always thought that he uh, helped us along now. When Jimmy passed, uh, I had done a lot of um, interviews, and people know me because I had a, a cook, a, the novel out, I you know, book um, appearances. Um, I was on a lot of interviews after I was killed because there was a season ending, and I killed, and everybody, you know, so everybody had my name. So when Jimmy passed... Um, they all wanted a reaction from me. And I always started off by saying, look, I wasn't close to Jim. But he affected me in several different ways. He came to my restaurant when he heard everybody else was doing it to do an appearance and meet the fans. I would do maybe one every two weeks, a different actor. Sick as a dog, rainy night. CNN was there, lying around the block. He sat down, took a picture with everybody, signed autographs. He... Said do you don't want to do this scene with the, uh, you know, with the security guard. We'll go talk to David. He came to my wedding and spoke. Um, and he's a shy guy, you know. So, those three things always I'll always remember. So, um, the problem, the situation happened was is that we were at the Emmys and we were doing the line, walking the red carpet, and a woman says to me. Reporter from USA Today. Do you guys use the f word in on at in the show? I said. I'm thinking to myself. I said, of course we do. You know, we're a mob show. She said, even Jimmy. I said, we all. Of course he does. We all do. We're a mob show. And that was it. That was that. The next day in the lobby, I get the fucking USA Today, and it was about. At the time, Grey's Anatomy, Isaiah Washington, and the other white kid that was gay, he called him a fag, you know? And that was the F word. And I thought they were fucking referring to the the word fuck. Hmm. Never in a million years did I think it was that. And never would I even... First of all, I'm portraying a gay guy. So why would I sort of mock myself? Second of all, why would I do that to Jim, who's been nothing but like, uh you know the greatest guy ever to me and as far as talent wise and treating me why would i do that to knock him and i went to him and i said jim this is not really what happened but you can't unring a bell so people pro i'd heard people protested in front of his house and this and that other thing and that didn't sit right with david and so on and no one really came to me and said joe why would you say that how could you say that I would have explained it, but I I wanted Jimmy to know it, that that's what happened. So when he passed, the post, and I like the post, but the post came out with a story saying it was doing this, you know, in his past and that in his past. And I'm saying, why the fuck would they print, you know, this guy had demons. We all had demons. I have demons, you know, uh, why would they print that? When the guy has done so much for the American veteran, was a fucking icon worldwide, why would they fucking knock him? So a guy on the cast was in the post doing a story that the week about his fucking apartment or some shit. I'm saying, why don't you fucking call them out? So I called up the writer from the post. I go, where the fuck do you get your balls big enough to write that about Jim and having his family fucking see that? And I fucking lashed into him. And I made it known. Um, and I think I was on radio calling him out too for the post. I said, what a bullshit story that is to fucking do that to a guy. And, uh, and nobody stuck up for him, especially the guy that was just in the post trying to sell his apartment or some shit, which I was referring to this other actor. And he got in touch with the post and fucking planted that whole story. And so many lies are in it. Like I had a fucking, a publicist, which I've never, ever even, interviewed him for a fucking publicist never even came close would never say that uh you know i wasn't grandstanding jimmy was not a close friend i led that off for every interview this is the way he touched me and i'll always remember as a great actor and a tremendous loss for just a regular guy that he is and so i wanted to clarify that and um thanks for giving me the opportunity
0: Absolutely. Did you ever get to tell James personally what you meant?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I, I did it that while we were at the Emmys that following day in the lobby of the hotel when the USA Today came out. And, you know, he kind of like wasn't so happy with it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you can't unring a bell because no matter what, no one's going to remember it. They're not going to print the retraction.
0: Right. You know, I'm going to ask this question. And if you don't want to answer it, it's completely fine. Were you and him cool after?
1: Well, no, he was always sort of a little put off, I would say. He was always a little put off, and I tried to approach him, and I could sense it, and I went to his trailer, and I don't even know if, you know, so I went to it. I went to the studio, and security said, no, you can't stay here, and I couldn't fucking believe it. I said, you know, he was so close. I mean, not so close, but he was at my wedding. You know, he touched me in a way. There was a fondness I think he had for me, and I had for him. And it all changed. And I was upset about that. And I think that if other cast members would have said, Joe, why, why would you say that? How could you say that? If they would have they had to ask, I would have explained it to them. And I explained it to Jimmy, but like I said, you can't ring a bell. Yeah.
0: Couple more questions. What are you working on right now? What's going on? What's on your plate?
1: Um, I just finished a movie called Crabs in a Bucket with uh, Jeremy Piven. Uh, Bruce Stern, Karen Manning, Jamie Kennedy, Jack McGee, uh, I'm going to forget some other guys, but small role, all. been big. Um, I just did a, uh, the Gordon Ramsay uh, Kitchen Nightmares with Big Pussies. So that was cool. I got to hang out with Vin. I haven't seen in a while. I represent a company, uh, as a consultant for school security, as far as, uh, uh, gun detection, facial recognition, um, one-button lockdowns. I have a 10-year-old daughter, which is important to me. Sure. I got them on Fox uh, with Neil Cavuto, Fox Gable, and, uh, Your World. I got them on the Fox uh, local news coming up December 5th. So I will work with them. Um, I continue to do appearances. I do guest uh, restaurants. I cook out of the Parmesan wheel. I make uh, linguine carbonara. I do that as guest chefs at several restaurants around Long Island, and um, you know, continue to work and hopefully get a uh, you know auditions. I just don't get auditions like I should.
0: Last good book you read?
1: Mm, that's a good one. You know, I do all my reading sort of online, and most of that's uh, the newspapers. If I'm not watching. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Um, I'm reading the papers online, which is New York Post, Daily News, Bailey. Not reading. uh, You know, I get books and then I don't finish them.
0: Sure. We all do. Um, Yeah. You'll never remember this, but I uh, years and years ago, I took a tour my cousins lived in New Jersey. I went to go visit them and they took me on this Sopranos, uh, location tour. <laughs> and, we, and we came, we ended up at some place and you pulled up, uh, in a crown Vic and you opened up the trunk and you came in, you took pictures with us. And, uh, uh, here I am doing a podcast about the show. And it's, uh, I've talked to 83 people, you're number 84, um, writers, actors, directors. Wait, 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 wait,
1: wait. you, you, you went out for a se- for a second. First of all, I never had a crown pick. It was either uh it was, a a Cadillac,
0: it was a Jeep
1: Eldorado. It was a Jeep? Oh, it was F S S V U. S V U V, whatever the fuck you call them. Yeah, yeah. I used to have a Benz or uh or uh
0: I say Crown Vic just because the show. Uh, they, they say it in the show all the time. You used to sell printers out of the back of your Crown Vic. That's the right, analogy. Right, 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 you come right. in, you pop the <laughs> trunk, and there's all this merch there. Uh, it was a memory right. for me. I never in a million years thought I'd be doing this project. And, and then, uh, like I said, speaking to all these various people that have been a part of the show. So,
1: And I, I, I saw the people that you've interviewed, but you've, you've really covered it
0: yeah i've covered it i honestly it started out as a really small thing and then it just took a life form of its own and it's been a pleasure every step of the way and, and this this one as well so thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story with with me and with listeners
1: well no thank you i'm I'm glad i had the opportunity uh of all the millions of interviews i've done i've never really had the chance to tell my side so, i mean this is an intelligent fucking i've done some horrible interviews where people aren't prepared they get my character wrong. They don't fucking, you know, think they take the interview and take pussy.
0: I overprepared to a fault.
1: No, I can see you're serious. You uh, definitely came prepared, and I enjoyed doing this.